0: Right, let's begin. Hopefully, this works. In situations of life, people do say things like this, don't they? I oh, won't well, just sit on the fence uh, on that particular issue. Or just get, you get the best of both worlds if you take that course of action. Those kind of phrases, though, they're indicative, aren't they, of a mindset that thinks you can kind of go through life taking all the smooth without the rough? That is, they look for experience without any reference to the consequences. Of those experiences. It's a very illogical worldview. It's kind of a, a utopian view of life. And to be honest, as most of us will know, it's utterly contrary to common sense. Or to, to use a, a well known proverb, if you like, you can't have your cake and eat it. Or as Paul will very forcibly show us in our passage today, he essentially says this if I if I summarise it well. He says, Galatians, you can't have Christ and circumcision. You can't trust in Christ for salvation and at the same time trust in circumcision for salvation at the same time. You can't sit on the fence here. You can't have both. And Paul is showing us today, as he has been throughout this letter, that the law and faith in Jesus Christ, in the realm of salvation, these things are mutually exclusive. You have to choose. And we have to choose. It's either Christ or circumcision. It's in the means of our salvation. They either come through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ or through the law. By doing things to try and please God, meriting ourselves before him in some way, or trusting in Christ and in Christ alone. We're either going for divine achievements as the basis of our salvation That's Jesus' death on the cross. Or we're trusting in our own human achievements for our salvation. (laughs) And so Paul is saying to the Galatians, as God may be saying to you today, through his Spirit-inspired word, you may be at this moment sitting on a fence of your own making. (laughs) The fence doesn't exist, my friends. You either have to trust Christ, life, death, and resurrection, or you've got to trust yourself. You either come before God in utter humility and realise you have nothing to offer for your salvation. Even your good actions, as the prophet Isaiah said, they are like filthy rags before a perfect, holy and righteous God. So you either come in humility with your heads bowed low, trusting that God will lift you up through faith in Jesus Christ, or you come trusting yourself You may be a little arrogant in that position. You think a little bit more highly of yourself than you ought. You think you can merit yourself in some way before a holy, perfect, and righteous God. (coughs) But the point is, we have to choose. You can't sit on the fence and have a bit of that and a bit of that. No, you have to choose. Now, the Galatians had chosen. They trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. They come in humility. They've been saved from the justice that their sins deserved. And, Paul says, they're free. They're free. As Christians, they knew the wonderful, liberating freedom that Jesus Christ offers us through his life, death, and resurrection. Paul had mentioned, if you look back uh, in chapter 2, verse 4, he mentioned the freedom that Christians know right back there. And here, as he begins chapter 5, look at verse 1. He's reminding the Galatians of that same freedom, when they've chosen Christ and not themselves. So let's look at verse 1. You, you get the idea. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now, it's interesting there. In I don't want to get too kind of grammar kind of heavy here, but the noun and the verb are both freedom there, which is interesting. It tells us both the means... And the end of freedom. Jesus Christ has freed us so that we as Christians can be complete, completely free both now and always. Uh, but the sobering point that Paul is making here in his opening verses of chapter 5 is that <coughs> this freedom that Christians enjoy can be lost. Uh, and here's my main point of today. Uh, if you're worried about the outline, it's quite full. But the first point is the main point. It's got four points in it. And then they're just application points, the last one. So don't panic. All right, so d- don't lose your gospel freedom. It's our main point today with a few sub points in there as well. That is, to say, you can't sit on the fence. The gospel calls us to stand firm, to be definite, to be decisive, to choose. And to choose Christ alone. Christians are set free. And we know the freedom of being free from the justice our sins deserve it is utterly liberating it is life transforming it is joyful it is a fulfilling life a fulfilling freedom but any freedom of value needs to be maintained it needs to be fought for doesn't it we enjoy a number of freedoms in our country and they are wonderful freedoms aren't they I was reading the uh, Metro newspaper this week. It was just lying there and Caffe Nero opened up and there was, there was an article about it, um, a, a court case that's going on at the moment in the high court uh, and the judge uh, was, had to make a comment to the jury because they were getting slightly agitated because one of the witnesses was wearing a full face veil, a Muslim lady. Now, here's what the judge said. In this country, everyone is entitled to express any religious view they wish or to hold no religious views. These are, whether I'm not going to make any comment about that particular case or any that particular lady, but these are the freedoms that we as Christians enjoy and work hard to maintain, don't we, in this country. We resist any attacks on those freedoms, political or religious freedoms. They require a, kind of a vigilance, don't they, and actually good law to maintain them and the responsibility of those under the law to maintain them and keep them. And likewise, Paul is saying to the Galatians Christ has brought you the most precious freedom through his own body and blood. Protect it. Stand firm in it. That's where we get to our first sub point there. Stand firm. It's a war kind of phrase, it's resist attack, essentially. And Paul is not saying that Christians can lose their salvation here, no. But we can lose our freedom by being enslaved once again to the fear, that insecurity of trying to own, our own earn our own salvation. See, the sad thing is that the Galatians knew what it felt like without the freedom that they enjoyed when they trusted Christ. Have a look back again to chapter 4, verse 3. Paul mentions there that once they were slaves before, (coughs) that is, they were slaves, they were bound to pagan idolatry. Let's think about it in terms of someone who lives and only lives for kind of climbing the corporate ladder. It's that kind of chasing after something other than God. They were slaves to that before they turned to Christ. It controlled them to a degree. They trusted that for security and assurance in life. But now... Having trusted Christ, they were turning to something else. They were then turning, they were now turning to a kind of a religious kind of moralism. Doing something religious to get them right before God. The, the, the example here is circumcision. And interestingly, Paul is kind of putting those two things together. Once they were involved in pagan idolatry, they were slaves to that. Now they're involved in kind of religious moralism, and they're slaves to that too. <clears throat> And essentially, Paul is saying, these are kind of the same thing. It's spiritual slavery both ways. Now, it's interesting, just to kind of make it contemporary language Just you don't really put the kind of the corporate junkie and the local liberal vicar together in life, do you? But it's interesting, Paul is kind of doing that. He's saying they're both slaves because they're trusting in something other than the one who gives total freedom. Namely, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the Galatians, having trusted Christ, were were giving away that freedom they once enjoyed by becoming now slaves to kind of a religious moralism, by doing stuff to kind of earn salvation before God. And they were feeling all the anxiety and all the guilt and all the burden that trying to earn your way to God brings. They were losing their freedom, that joy. Uh, Paul uses the terms, they were yoked to it weighed down by it and so paul warns them about the specific issue we get that um, in our second little sub point do not add to christ look at the words he uses though to begin verse two it's very strong mark my words he says i don't know if you have any parents out here say that kind of thing to their children at times but maybe i'm the only one but there's a very emphatic use of the word he says i paul that is he's saying i the apostle paul the one who has taught you about all this freedom that you can enjoy in Christ. And then he uses a really, really, a pastoral, warm phrase. Listen, my brothers. Essentially, his arm is around them at that point. they have been listening to this group called the Judaizers. I can never say that word, but it's, it's something like that, Judaizers. Um, and let's read a, bit, a, little bit, a little bit about them if we can. Turn to Acts chapter 15 with me, if you can. That is on page... 1110. 1110. One, 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 Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Here is um, Paul at the Council of Jerusalem. This is Acts is a historical account of the apostles uh, once Jesus had returned uh, to glory. And here is uh, Paul in Jerusalem. And he says, Some men came down uh, from Judea to Antioch, uh, Brazilian Antioch. So that is one of the Galatian churches. Okay, that's a historical account. And they were teaching. And what they were teaching, he says in in, uh, Acts chapter 15, this is like their slogan, if you like, these false teachers of Galatians. This is their slogan. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't be saved. Why don't you flick down then to verse five as well. uh, What does it say? Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles, that's the non-Jews, must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. People have become Christians from a non-Jewish background and they said, no, you've got to become circumcised if you're going to be saved. But at this point, you're probably thinking, flip back if you want to, to Galatians. Why is Paul so worried about this? You might think... Why is he getting so het up about just a tiny little operation? You see, it's what it stands for is the issue. And it's what it undermines is the problem. Yeah, it may be a small operation, but it signifies trust in someone or something other than Jesus Christ. That is, it undermines Christ's work on the cross. Circumcision is saying, Christ, you've done that, but it's insufficient. Your work is insufficient. You need to do this little act of kind of a religious act, and then you're saved. So what words does Paul want them to mark? Well, what he does in these verses, verse 2-4, to he kind of... He exposes their position and then responds to it. Now, they're intermingled, but I've kind of separated them, so I hope that's helpful. Let's look at their position first and then how Paul responds to it very quickly. Look at it, verse 2. They've received circumcision. That's their position. But Paul points out, in doing this little operation, what they're doing is they're binding themselves to a system that is then saying, we've got to get ourselves right with God by doing stuff. That's the system um, that you, he's saying that you're on your own really you've done away with god's way you're on your own and he says that in verse three that what by doing that by circumcising uh, people that they're now bound to the law he says in verse three they're required to obey the whole law it says that is he's saying circumcision means you're you're on a route to saying you've got to completely and utterly in your mind in your actions Do everything to the perfect standard of God's law to try and earn salvation. Just try it now. It's very difficult. Are your thoughts completely pure? And so on. But they're binding themselves to obey the whole law, Paul says. And verse 4, they seek to be justified by the law. We've been talking about justification the whole way through this series uh, rooted in kind of chapter 2, verse 15. But it's, it's to be made right with God, to have your peace with God, to know true and eternal freedom with God. That's their position. Circumcision means that they're bound to the law, to obey the whole law, and they're, they're seeking to be justified, to be made right with God through the law. And Paul responds. What does he do? He tells them in verse 2. It makes it even stronger in verse 3. He declares to them, That is, he's been appointed uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ and empowered with the apostolic authority. And what he's doing by by saying that, you know, I declare to you, he's saying, hey, look, these guys, they're not apostles. Why are you listening to them? Look at the authority, the empowerment that I have. Listen to me. What does he tell them, though? Second point, he says that Christ will be of no value to you at all, he says. At the end of verse two, you see that. See, what he's saying is you either go for the value and the benefit of circumcision or either you go for the value and the benefit of trusting Christ for salvation. You either, you know, go for doing things your way to get to God or Christ's way to get to God. You, you trust in the profit and the benefit of Christ dying on the cross for your sin in your place. Which one are you going to do? Your own work or Christ's work? They're mutually exclusive. We said they can't be kind of brought together, kind of melded together. If you try, what Paul is saying is that Christ will be of no value. No value at all to you. You're on your own, he's saying. The result, though, look at it, verse four, is pretty stark, isn't it? You'll be alienated from Christ. You will have fallen away from grace, he says. Now, at this point, the commentaries go ballistic, because it seems like, you know, really, Paul? I mean, it's, that, that's quite shocking language. Is he saying that Christians can lose their faith here? No, because that would be utterly inconsistent from what he teaches elsewhere. And look at verse 10, actually, just in this passage here. You'll see he, he, has, he expresses his confidence there that they will turn their backs on the false teachers and turn back to Christ. Uh, He's confident that they won't lose their faith, that they won't fall from grace. So why did he use such strong language here? Alienated from Christ, fallen from grace. And what Paul is saying, I think, in verse 4 is that if you trust your own means, that is here, what he's talking about is circumcision, and you don't trust Christ, if you continue in that, you will show yourself to be someone that never fully trusted Christ in the first place. Now John in his letter, 1 John chapter 2 verse 19, I think puts it really well. He, said, he puts it this way, he says, speaking of some of the followers, some of the, the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says this, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Let me summarise it if I can. We know, many of us as Christians, that there are moments where we, we, we waver slightly, don't we? We have niggling doubts. Uh, we falter in our faith, but they're momentary falters. Uh, we turn back to Christ. We, we open up his word. We, we cry out to him in prayer. And we remember his goodness and his kindness. And joy fills our hearts as we realise we've been silly. We've turned our backs and but we've come back. And once again, we enjoy that freedom that Christ has brought us. But Paul is warning the Galatians here in verse four. Don't show yourselves to be those who never believed. Come back. Trust Christ. And he's saying you can't have it both ways. It's either Christ or circumcision. Grace or works. Which are you going to trust to save you? You see, summarised, I think it goes like this. If you add anything to Christ for salvation you lose Christ. And that is it, is it most simple. If you add anything to Christ, you lose Christ. The reformers put it this way. In the 16th century, they said, salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And this is the point that Paul is going to go on to in verse 5 and 6. Put your faith in Christ. And it's interesting, the language changes from you, pointing, if you like, saying you, Galatians, to we. Uh, Paul includes now himself, by faith we eagerly await, he says. But, but what are they waiting for? Well, they're waiting through the spirit. That is, they wait not for, the, what they wait for is not fully experienced in the body yet, but is a spiritual certainty. And what is it they're waiting for? It's the righteousness, it says there, for which we hope. That is the perfect righteousness of Christ that is swapped for our own righteousness on the cross. Now, as Christians, we spiritually experience and know Jesus' perfect, righteous life being counted as ours as we trust in his life, death and resurrection. But we also experience, don't we, the struggles of life. As we mess up again and again, the Bible calls that rebellion sin. We fall short of God's perfect standards. But you see, in putting our faith in Christ, we look forward to knowing fully his righteousness in our lives. The Bible calls that, it's our glorification. That when we're perfect in every way, face to face with our Father in heaven. It is our freedom, our hope, and it's not a it's not a wish. The hope of verse five is not a kind of oh, you know, I hope it might be sunny tomorrow, you know, kind of like in a British way. Oh it'd be nice, wouldn't it? Be hope it's thirty degrees tomorrow. Wouldn't that be good? That'd be great. No, it's not like that. Biblical hope lacks no certainty no kind of certainty. It is a powerful assurance. It is something certain. Why? Because the object of our hope is utterly certain. We hope in Christ's finished work on the cross and its benefits. Hence, instead of trying to earn our righteousness, Christians await the righteousness which we hope for with no anxiety. It's a certainty. Our certain future with God is is secured by the certainty of our Saviour, who is with God. Paul is saying here, put your faith in Christ. Anything else, circumcision or uncircumcision, he says in verse 6. That is, he's saying, it's either through a kind of a, a moral exertion, doing some religious stuff, or through moral failure. It doesn't matter either way, circumcision or uncircumcision. None of that counts. All of us stand equally lost before God, but also equally savable. Whether you feel right now, how do you feel before God? Do you kind of like feel a kind of moral and spiritual success? I've had a good week, God. I'm pretty all right. Look at me. Take me. I'm great. Or do you feel absolute moral? And spiritual failure. And figuratively, you hang your head and you feel oh, God, you can't possibly want anything to do with me. The point is, your performance is utterly irrelevant, it's utterly irrelevant for your salvation. What matters, what is relevant for salvation is simple. And Paul makes it clear, it's faith. It's faith alone. Look at it, he says it very clearly, the only thing that counts is faith. Nothing else matters. But faith is always expressed. Saving faith is always a faith that works. And that is not to say that Faith added to by love, which is what he's talking about here in verse 6, is the grounds for our salvation. You can't have a bit of faith and a bit of love and that's what Jesus, God's looking for. No, he's saying faith alone saves us, but saving faith that Christians know in our heart and our lives. That is what we're talking about next week, what James will be looking at is life in the spirit, Paul calls it there, always produces good works of love. I don't know, have you ever done something sort of, you know, slightly generous and kind and someone said to you, you know, why did you do that? And you you see a little avenue, you think, right, I'm going to have an opportunity here to share a little bit of my faith and here I go. And so you say something, and I've done this all the time, and you say something like this, oh, it's because that's what Christians do. It's because that's what we're told to do in the Bible. Now that's true, that's right. But I wonder if it would be more correct to say, my faith in Jesus Christ, that he has saved me, can't stop expressing itself in love. I think that's the point that Paul is making here. We can't contribute anything to our salvation, but saving faith expresses itself in love for others. Don't lose your gospel freedom. Stand firm. Do not add to Christ. Put your faith in Christ. They, if you like, being the defensive strategies. Here's the more offensive strategy, if you like. Run a good race. Paul has been focused on the Galatian believers and now what he's doing, he takes a slight turn in verse seven through to verse 12 and now examines the teachers. Look at verse seven. He says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? For Christmas, I I got a watch. Uh, All my family kind of clubbed together, and it tells me what I want to know when I'm kind of doing exercise and stuff like that. It's a bit of a fancy watch, and um, you know, when I swim, it tells me how many strokes I've taken and how many lengths I've done. It's all very exciting, and then. When I go out for a run, it kind of tells me how unfit I am um, and how I should have run up that hill much better than that. Anyway, it shows me how I'm running well or running really badly. And it's usually that side at the moment, you know, and there's lots of variables to run well. And my watch tells me about all of those. And that's a Polish saying here. You need to run well. If you want to know what, uh, if you want to know the freedom of Christ, if you like, in your lives, you've got to... Run well. Not not let people push you off your course, if you like. What is it to to run the Christian life well? See, it's not just to believe the truth. It's not just to live a morally upright life. It's both, as he says here. It's obeying the truth. Living it out. Marrying your belief with your behaviour. John Stott put it really well this week. He He said this. Only he who obeys the truth is an integrated Christian. His creed is expressed in his conduct. His conduct is derived from his creed. Now, they see the Galatians are being hindered by these false teachers. They were running well, but now they're kind of limping along. And if they carried on like this, the warning has come already, hasn't it? They'd fall from grace. And so Paul, if you like, begins by looking at these false teachers and unpicks why they're so dangerous. I'm going to run through this very fast. He looks at, like, firstly, the origin of their teaching. And looking at verse 8, he shows that it's not from God. Why? Well, because the Galatians themselves, as Paul reminded him back in chapter 1, verse 6, have been called by grace. Therefore, the false teacher's message, which is not of grace, it's of law, is inconsistent with the Galatians' calling. It's the origin of their teaching. It's inconsistent with the calling of grace that the Galatians have received. The effect, well, look at verse seven, they're hindered by these false teachers. Verse 10, they're troubled by them. Verse 12, they're unsettled by them. And Paul uses the common proverb, we know, about the yeast and the dough, showing that this teaching is very dangerous. It was corrupting the church, contaminating the whole church. So we've seen the origin, the effect, and what's the end of of this kind of teaching? Verse 10, well, firstly, Paul is confident that it wouldn't win, but the grace of God would triumph over this kind of teaching. Verse 12, Paul feels really strongly about this. I won't go into this verse, but it's probably Paul's strongest ever words in the whole of the New Testament. He kind of wishes they'd have a bit of a slip with the knife. Um, you can look at that later. Verse 11, let me just focus on that if I can a little bit more. This is interesting because Paul shows here that if he were encouraging circumcision, and he, he's not He wants to make that clear. But if he were, then why is he still being persecuted? And what Paul is saying here is that, you know, circumcision, that's easy to teach. Anyone can stand up and do that. It's a crowd pleaser. It'd be like like me standing up and saying, yeah, for salvation, guys. All you need to do is make sure you buy the big issue every week. Uh, You know, you're a nice kind of chap, average, not too goody, but not too bady. Don't murder anyone. But if you you keep on those kind of parameters, you're okay for salvation. That's pretty much what he's saying. Salvation by doing stuff, you see, whatever the stuff I put before you, salvation by doing stuff is just flattery. But Paul preaches Christ. And that is utterly offensive to human pride. It's unpopular because it's unflattering. And what does it do? It invites persecution. Because you're telling people, oh, I'm sorry, guys, you can't save yourselves. You need someone else to save you. See, Paul is showing here that the true preaching of the Christian gospel, trusting in Christ alone and his work on the cross, will always be offensive. If he uses the word literally, there's a scandal. As I mentioned last week, the Isaacs will always be the ones who are persecuted. It was true of the Old Testament. It was true of Christ and the apostles. It's true of the church throughout all the ages. We may live in in an age which prides itself in its tolerance. But when you dare to say that the proverbial fence that so many of your friends would love to sit on. When you say that there is no fence at all. You either choose Christ or you're on your own. And when you make clear that the cross is an offence you have to expect a reaction. If we're to run a good race as Paul longed for the Galatians, we must not be hindered, troubled or unsettled, but lean firmly on Christ, knowing that a decisive faith in him will always be an offence to some. But we must not throw away that freedom, but rather stand firm in it. I've got three minutes to go through these next uh, four application little points. We're going to run through them. We've not to lose our gospel freedom, but secondly, we're not to abuse a gospel freedom. Four brief points. Firstly, do not indulge the flesh. You see that at the beginning of verse thirteen. Christian freedom—it's it's freedom of the conscience, um, and it's freedom from the guilt of our sin. And the Galatians have been called to this freedom by the effectual, you see the effectual calling of God there in that verse. God takes the initiative, calls us into freedom. But isn't it interesting? Most people, most onlookers to Christian Christians and the Christian faith, think that Christianity is it's more slavery than freedom. But the freedom Christians know is not, it's not an anarchy. It isn't without constraint. It is... It isn't a license to, as he wants here, it's not to indulge our passions. That is he's saying there's there's a responsibility in our freedom. It's a freedom from sin and its and its punishment. It's not a freedom to sin. In reality, no one no one at all in the whole of our world really wants unbridled license to do as they please. Can you imagine it? Just in the big and whistle off church? Everyone do as they please. Have you ever done that? When I was at university, we were asked to invent a game. You can imagine a bunch of sports science students, okay? You invent a game, and the lecturer stood back. And we got him. We said, we can do anything right now. That is, he said, there are no rules. Go. After about three minutes, we had to stop it because someone had broken their nose. But you get the idea? None of us, none of our world wants unbridled license. That is not civilization, that's anarchy. So, Paul's point is here you know freedom, Christian freedom, but don't indulge yourselves, abuse the freedom. Rather, we're to, second point, serve one another in love, he says. Christian freedom, you see, is not lived out in selfish gain, but loving service. In a sense, there's this paradox experience in Christian freedom. That is, in relation to God, we're free. Free from the guilt of our sin, the punishment for our sin, but in relation to others. We're literally, he uses the word here, doulos, which means slaves. Isn't that funny? We're to serve them, we're to be slaves to others in love. Again, another scholar put it this way, truly to love someone is not to possess him for myself, but to serve him for myself, for himself, sorry. Third point, third application point, do not disregard the law. Don't think that loving one another, doing good, will somehow allow us to break the law. I know what, I'll buy a drink for someone tonight, but that's okay because I can be a gossip at an office tomorrow. Or, you know, I help an old lady across the uh, the road so I can ignore what God says about my relationships and what he says about money. Christian freedom is not to disregard the law. Once we've been saved by God, we will enjoy, do everything we can to keep his law. Not to save us, I hope that's been clear tonight, but to thank him for his grace. The Spirit and the Word has been given to help us to do that. And lastly, verse 15, be warned. Just look at it. Look look at what happens when we abuse our freedom in Christ. Everyone who has been truly set free by Christ expresses his freedom in three ways in these verses. Look at them. Self-control, do not indulge your passions. Loving service of neighbour, serve one another in love. And obedience to God's law, we're not to disregard it. So as Christians, this is the freedom that Christ has called us to and the freedom that Christ has set us free for. And we are to, as Paul says, stand firm in it. Just in a moment, uh, quietness of our own hearts, why don't we pray that that might be so for each of us. But if we do not know... (coughs) the freedom that we've just been speaking of here in christ maybe this is the moment you do need to trust in the lord jesus christ and pray to him and come humbly before him and trust in him and in him alone.